This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. It is Saturday morning, and welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we are joined by Gidon Hazoni, president of Israeli-based Soldiers Save Lives, which was founded just 48 hours after the October 7 massacre in the Jewish state carried out by Iran-backed Hamas. Gidon's parents met at Princeton University and the family made Aliyah in 1994 that is emigrating to Israel. Gidon is a valedictorian in mathematics at Hebrew University, spent a year in America working in the field of probability and game theory, and before October 7 was teaching calculus at Hebrew University. Gidon, it's great to have you join us from the biblical heartland of Israel in the Judean Hills. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Welcome, Gidon. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much. All right, Gidon, we truly appreciate the fact that you were introduced to us by James Moore, a great friend of us from Newsmax, and uh, he shared with us your important mission that you're accomplishing today. And uh, when we first connected via Zoom last week, you shared about what happened on that fateful day on October 7, and about your friend David Newman, who was bravely defending lives at the music festival that was hit hard by the Iranian-backed Hamas terrorist group. Uh, Gidon, could you take us through your journey from Jerusalem to southwest Israel on that fateful day on October 7, 2023? Of course. Saturday morning, October 7th, around 7.30 a.m., I woke up in my apartment in Katamon, Jerusalem, to the sound of sirens. And it's, uh, it's pretty normal to get a siren, you know, once a year, a missile siren in Jerusalem or in Tel Aviv. So, you know, you get up, you, you make yourself a cup of coffee, you go into the bomb shelter, you have about a minute to get to the bomb shelter. Um, but the problem with that Saturday morning, uh, the first problem was that there were consecutive sirens, one after the other. And um, at that point, you know, you start taking out your phone, checking the headlines, nothing interesting there. But then videos started to come up on social media of terrorists in the streets on the border of Gaza. And this is around 8 a.m. where you start to understand maybe something serious is going on. Um, I then communicated with some of my friends and realized that my best friend, David Newman, was at the Nova Music Festival on the Gaza border and that there has been an invasion from Gaza and that that party was under attack. I wasn't able to initially contact David, but I was contacting my friend Baruch, Baruch, who is the CEO of this organization. And Baruch um, told me that he got a text from David that we should pray for him, that he was in trouble. And I decided, along with my roommate, Ezra, who is David's cousin, we decided we we're going to drive down to the party and try to save him. We didn't really know what we were getting into. Our instinct kind of kicked in. Our, our very close friend was in trouble. Um, we're both medics. We were, we were medics in the army, and I was also a medic in MADA, which is the Israeli first aid organization. It's Israeli Red Cross. 
And we put together med kits from my home. Uh, my roommate Ezra had a handgun. I drove over to my friend's house. He wasn't there. He was in America, but he told me to stop by and take his handgun before I went south. My friend's father gave us bulletproof vests and his mother gave us packed lunch. And we started driving south. Baruch drove Ezra and I down towards the party. Um, at around 10 a.m. or 10.30 a.m., we reached the northern part of Route 232 by Sirot, which is already on the border of Gaza at the north northernmost point of the Gaza Strip um, on the border. And there were there was police there preventing people from going through. They told us we can't go through. This is a war zone. We absolutely can't go in. It's not safe. And... Um, I got out of the car. I remember I was wearing my medic shirt and I approached the policeman and I said, I'm a medic and you know, I'm going to go in there. I'm armed. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to save people, including my friend. And the policeman said, by all means, go ahead. And myself and Ezra, we went through, we hopped into an ambulance, was very happy for us to join him. He was just a driver looking for medics to join. And we started driving south near Zerot. Um, Pretty quickly, um, we felt the chaos and the anarchy that was happening on the border of Gaza that day. Um, there were cars, occasional cars flying by at 200 kilometers an hour. Um, there was this one car, one of the first things that we needed to do as medics. We're driving down the highway. On the other side of the highway, there's a car stopped in the middle of the road and people laying by the car who looked like they need help. I remember getting out of the ambulance. At first, telling the ambulance to stop. He was hesitant. He said, it's too dangerous. But we insisted because, you know, we're armed. We're medics. That's our job. We got out. We crossed over and we approached to help these people. And, you know, we freeze initially, which is not the right reaction for a medic. But uh, after a couple, after about 10, 15 seconds, you know, you realize, I realized these people were dead and they've been dead for several hours. And as, there's nothing really I could do to help them as a medic. Um, at that point, my life changed forever. Adrenaline kicked in. I took, uh, took pictures of their, of their IDs. That's what I thought I should do. That would be helpful in case someone might want to know in the future. And we went back into the ambulance and started driving more south. Next up, we approached... Uh, some sort of bus stop with a crowd of civilians surrounding the bus stop. We get out. There are five injured soldiers, Golani soldiers at the bus stop. None of them with very severe injuries. It appears um, maybe some sort of grenade because a bunch of them had shrapnel wounds and burn wounds. But one of them had a, a serious uh, shrapnel or bullet in his knee. It's hard to tell. And we load them up into the ambulance and we started treating them as we were continuing to drive. I wasn't exactly sure where the driver was going. I was focused on taking care of the soldiers. And I treated the five of them along with Ezra. We, you know, we split the work. And I remember looking out the window and seeing more people who needed help and looking to the ambulance and saying, these guys, these guys are good. They're, they're going to live. They're going to be fine. Um, so I turned to the least injured soldier and I said, hey, are you a medic? And he said, yes. And I said, OK, you're taking over because I'm needed outside. And I remember I hopped out of the ambulance and Ezra and I just hopped out in this area where there were a couple other medics and we all kind of got together. And one thing led to another and we set up a, a field base. A, for medics and for people to show up if they needed medical treatment. A truck somehow showed up with a bunch of med kits and just dropped off a pile of med kits there. And before I know it, there are helicopters landing and taking off in the field next to us as we are carrying people from the ambulances, the civilian cars to the to the helicopters if they need, um, or treating them right there on the spots or telling them to wait as we treat other people. It became one large triage center. Now, while all this was happening, this was in the afternoon of Saturday, I remember I was thinking to myself, I'm supposed to go down and save David. However, as a medic, I felt like I had a moral duty to treat the people right in front of me and to continue doing the work that I did. So every time I kind of was about to go and and you know start saying let's go further south, either the another person would come who would need medical attention or the driver wasn't available, and I just ended up staying there up until about seven or eight p.m. when I got a call from David's brother who told me that David was killed. 
I stayed. And Gidon, just as yeah. a point of reference here, at this moment you find out that David, your very best friend, is killed there. Uh, were there any stories coming out of uh, that part of uh, southern Israel of what uh, David was involved in? Was he involved in uh, helping individuals? or uh, And did you get any feedback from those that knew him at that festival? There was multiple different uh, pieces of information that came in about how, you know, what he did at the festival and about how a bunch of them hit a trash can and how he went out to, to watch and perhaps protect people. Um, I... I I hesitate to say exactly what happened there because I would like to stick to everything that I know to be for a fact. And unfortunately, I don't know anything to be for a fact. What happened there? I know David's personality. I know that he would be looking out for people. It makes sense that he would go out and 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 keep watch while other people were hiding. Um, but I don't know exactly what happened, and I don't think I ever will know exactly. I mean, his girlfriend was hiding the trash can. She ended up surviving, and she tells the story of what happened until they got to the trash can. But beyond that, when he got out of the trash can and either, you know, went on a lookout or did he go attack terrorists? I don't know exactly what he did and I cannot mm. say for sure. Um, after I received that phone call at about 8 p.m. on Saturday evening, we continued treating, um, you know, injured soldiers and civilians in that area until about midnight. And then I went back to my apartment in Jerusalem. She got a ride back to my apartment in Jerusalem. Someone just offered me a ride. They said, hey, you need to get somewhere. I was like, yeah, I could get back to my apartment. And they drove me. And when I got to my apartment, I walk in and there are some of my family members and my friends waiting for me at my apartment. And you know, that's one of the moments I realized that not only did something crazy happen that day, I did something pretty crazy that day. Uh, my family members, I think there were a couple cousins, gave me a hug. My siblings are already called up to battle. Um, and they left my family members and my friends and I sat there and, you know, for a second talked about how David was killed. We grieved. We uh, talked about the day. And then we decided we're going to step up and we're going to do something mm. in his memory right. and for the country. Right, Gidon. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to ask you, Gidon. So together with your friends, you co-founded the organization Soldiers Save Lives. Just four, Right then and there, at that Just moment. 48 yes. hours after the October 7 massacre. Um, technically, it wasn't even 48 hours after. I would say that the name Soldiers Save Lives came up probably first came up 48 hours after. But the mission Soldiers Save Lives were doing started on late Saturday night, Sunday morning. Right, right. You actually identified an acute need. So with the army offered weapons, uniforms, and some protective gear, a whole array of supplementary gear, including sleeping bags, tactical helmets, ceramic vests, and more, was still urgently needed. And your website explains its dual logistical mission. You gather donations of light tactical gear in your U.S. warehouse, ship them to Israel, and distribute them directly to units in need. Uh, can you kindly share with us, how can Americans get involved? How can Americans get involved? So when, when we started, we were crowdfunding, we were crowdsourcing donations. We were asking everybody to donate whatever they can and bring it to the warehouse. That wasn't an effective way to do things. So it was extremely unorganized. What we've shifted to now is large in-kind donations from wholesalers and CEOs of big companies. So if you are a CEO of a large a uh, company that has light tactical gear that we can ship because we've built an import business from the United States. So we can ship things over. So if you've got winter gear, if you've got boots, if you've got flashlights, if you've got knee pads, and you want to make a very large in-kind donation of such product to Israel, then you can reach out to us and we can take care of shipping it to Israel and distributing it. Great. What is the website that individuals can go to in order to gather more information? soldierssavelives.org is the website. I'll repeat that. That's soldierssavelives.org. And over there, you can find a lot of information 
on everything that we do um, and everything that we've done. A lot about our team, a lot about David, um, you know, the different ways that we are able to both collect gear and distribute it, the different ways we've helped all these different units, um, videos and pictures of all of our impact all over the country. Right. Right. And as we read last, actually, on your website, you have supplied more than 20 IDF units and civilian response teams with protective and self-defense gear. And there's also information that you had raised and allocated more than $1 million in gifts. I don't know whether you can update us on that and, you know, flights and actually El Al is providing space, cargo let space. Me, let, let me get these numbers clear. Those 20 IDF, there's a difference between the donations of gear that we collect and distribute, donations of gear that we collected and shipped and distributed in Israel, that's over $20 million worth of mm. gear. We've done 10,000 pairs of army boots. We've done a whole lot of winter supplies. We've done so much, especially since we started working with the big companies who want to make large in-kind donations. Mm -hmm. So through there, we've done tens of millions of dollars worth of gear. Right. Now, we've also fundraised. And at this point, I know it doesn't say it on the website because fundraising came from a bunch of different places. Some of it was crowdfunding. Some of it was from, from uh, philanthropists. But at this point, we fundraised almost $3 million. And that... Those funds we allocate to two places, either to our import business to pay for, for shipping of anything we might want to ship, either if it's by plane or by ship. And the other place is that we answer two direct funding requests from high-end units. This is those those 20 units that it says over there, those are 20 units that we funded gear for, specifically funded, didn't ship, that they requested. And we verify their request with the sheet bet or, or some high-level authority is able to tell us that request is actually necessary. And through there, we've done about uh, 20 different units who asked for very specific things. So, but from our import business, we've brought, you know, 10,000 pairs of army boots. Those have gone all over the country. Right. I mean, knowing and for our listeners that this was the largest, fastest mobilization in the history of Israel with 300,000 civilian soldiers in 48 hours. I mean, your needs are really tremendous. Yes, that that's a lot of what was happening in the first couple of days of the war, the Israel was not prepared in the beginning. We are, I just want to let it clarify, we're going we're gonna to win this war. We're, we're winning this war and we're going to win this war. Mm. Okay, we were caught off guard by a malicious, terrible terrorist attack. And now we've taken control and we've taken control because of how Israel and the Jewish people stand together at times like this. Yeah. We've been following the, the plight of the more than 100 hostages still kept captive uh, in Gaza. Uh, we're concerned about their health and well-being, of course, because most of them are probably in places uh, that we cannot even imagine uh, what they're experiencing. Uh, the reports that we've received is the fact that, you know, some may be needing uh, immediate medical care. And now we're looking at months that have gone by since these individuals were taken hostage. Uh, what is the situation on the ground with the families hoping to see their loved ones back in their own homes in Israel. I know that there's a lot of pressure being placed on Israeli's government to uh, come up with a, uh, a solution uh, for them to uh, be returned. Uh, how do Israelis look at this at this stage here where they're fighting Hamas on one side, but working to see hostages, Israelis and Americans, being freed? You just asked me probably the most complex political question that exists right now within this conflict on the Israeli side. Um, I'll answer the first part of the question. You said, how is it for the families? It's it's absolutely awful. It's terrible. I cannot even imagine what they're going through. Um, even like it, it's uh, like one of your family members being taken hostage for months and not hearing from them. Like that's 
that's a really, really hard thing. And I, I don't blame them at all for going out there and putting as much pressure as they possibly can. The government probably would have done the same thing. Um, now, in terms of, of, you know, the balance, the, the there, there is a balance here. You know, there, there is an idea of, hey, we need to go and save these hostages. Um, but we also need to go and destroy Hamas, that terrorist organization that raped and killed thousands of people. And I don't, I'm not in the government and I'm not in intelligence. I'm not going to go out and make these decisions, but I will say that it's in, in my opinion, it, it is, it does not look good for those hostages. It, uh, it doesn't. And at some point, you know, you gotta, you gotta focus on the goal that you can complete and that you are completing, which is destroy Hamas and don't let something like this ever happen again. And that does on some level could at some level come at the cost of some of these hostages lives, but it saves many, many, many lives and suffering in the future. Um, again, I'm not in the government. I don't get to make these decisions, but I will say that's, that's my point of view on that. And get on one of the things that we talked about last week uh, before our interview today is the fact that there's some, I would say 200,000 Israelis that have been displaced internally and that's something that we don't hear about very much in our media. They really are focused on what's going on in Gaza. But Israeli families have been sort of uprooted from their homes in the northern part of Israel as they are threats from the southern part of uh, Lebanon with 150,000 rockets being based out of Lebanon. You also have individuals that were from southern Israel that were brought to places like Jerusalem and other locations as well. And apparently from what you mentioned, you're also helping these families too. Uh, what is the plight of these more than 200,000 individuals, Israelis, that have been, you know, moved out of their homes uh, to being placed elsewhere. First of all, it is correct. A lot of the work that we're doing, especially recently, is we're bringing in civilian aid as well. Uh, clothes, shoes, um, winter clothing, whatever it is, for civilians who were displaced, you know, getting them the humanitarian support that they need. Um, in terms of what is the plan for the 200,000 civilians who were displaced, the plan is to win the war. Win the war, regain safety, regain control over our borders, and comfort living near our borders of our country, just like every other country should feel comfortable with living on the borders of their country. Mm. So right. we got to go and we got to win this war. Well, in fact, uh, you were here in the United States, uh, in New York, and then also in Canada. And, uh, you know, there's individuals that would like to volunteer. We are hearing about volunteers that have come to Israel uh, to help uh, some of the vineyards, for example. Uh, they have volunteered their time at some of the these farms too across Israel and uh, how safe is it uh, if Americans are concerned about safety and volunteering their time uh, to return to Israel or to go to Israel for the first time what would you say to them uh, those who are interested in volunteering their time and helping out Israel at this very moment in history um, well, we're at a moment in history so you either show up or you don't show up and in terms of you asking me how safe it is it in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? It's safer than the streets of New York. Okay, it just is. That's just that's just the reality. It's always been the reality. People like overthink it way too much. You know, the occasional terrorist attack does happen, but the occasional stabbing attack happens in New York as well, more often than an occasional terrorist attack in Jerusalem. So, you want to come and you want to volunteer in in the vineyards. You want to go if you're if you're thinking of going to go on the borders of a country that's at war. That's obviously stupid. But if you're coming to me in, in 
inside of the country, you come volunteer at our warehouse, you come volunteer at a home that's at a place that's preparing food for, for these families. It's completely safe. It just is. And, you know, like that's that's my word. Like you should come and you should see how things are for yourself, because, yes, we are at a moment of history. Don't miss out. And as we wrap up our discussion with you, Gidon, any final words for our fellow Americans and uh, those who have been supportive of Israel, America's partnership with Israel? And uh, what is your message to our fellow Americans? The slogan of our organization is let's do something. Mm. Okay, We were hit with a tragedy. Our best friend was killed and we decided to step up and do something in his memory. We like we talked about a couple of times at a moment in history. It's one thing to support Israel. It's another thing to actually do something about it. Like get up and do something. That's what I can say. All right. Well, Gidon, thank you so much for joining us today on America's Roundtable. The organization that Gidon and his colleagues are running is called Soldiers Save Lives. Uh, you can certainly check that out. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's soldierssavelives.org. Uh, visit that. That is correct. Yep. Visit that website. And yeah, you can just Google Soldiers Save Lives. It'll be the first thing to come up. Wonderful. We thank you so much for joining us, Gidon, and we continue to uh, you know, support Israel and all that we are doing here from the United States, and we wish you continued success as you meet your objectives and your goals as well. Yeah, thank you, Gidon. Thank you so much, all. Thank you, Natasha, as well. We wish you all the best in your most important mission, and our thoughts and prayers are with your friends and with David's family and his girlfriend who survived the attacks. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adansami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. 